Minnesota is home to two of the most livable cities, the most beautiful natural scenery, and one of the most industrious, creative cultures in the world. In recent years, a thriving democracy of checks, balances, and an adversarial media have been replaced by political rivalries and corrupt officials, more focused on delivering for donors and interest groups than honoring the public trust. Increasingly, local media seems in lockstep with this enterprise. In the spring of 2020, this system broke down and sent shockwaves throughout the country. MinQuery is not about politics. It is about the breakdown in transparency and accountability to the public and what can be done to bring sustainable balance back to Minnesota government. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, we're really pleased tonight to be uh, holding a mayoral forum on uh, the issues of charter change, primary focus being on the public safety uh, charter change. Uh, we have invited uh, a number of the mayoral candidates. Uh, we have two of them already with us. Uh, we want to thank them both for joining us. Uh, AJ Awad is with us, uh, as well as Kate Knuth. Uh, thank you both so much. We may or may not be joined by others as the night moves on. Um, uh, we are going to start uh, tonight by uh, having about 10 minutes from Josh Martin. Uh, Josh is someone who studies City Hall extremely closely uh, and has done uh, quite a bit of research uh, that maybe we, I, I could say demystifies the notion a little bit of a Department of Public Safety. What would that look like? Where has it been done elsewhere? Um, and uh, we're also really pleased to have with us uh, Walt McClure. Uh, Walt comes to us as a policy fellow uh, at the Center for Policy Design at uh, Hamlin University. Uh, he's an expert, on, an expert on large system architecture. Uh, and uh, we look forward to, to, to your thoughts. And, and uh, uh, we are pleased that NTN is uh, agreeing to uh, produce this uh, great discussion tonight. Um, and Val, maybe before we turn it over, maybe you could just take a moment about how folks can get involved in the conversation, those who are watching. For sure. Uh, we have, we're live on YouTube, so there is a Q&A uh, portion. Uh, during the discussion portion, you can put your questions into the chat, um, and I will, I will make sure that they come into the discussion here on Zoom. So uh, people can just type them, or if they want to tweet them or whatever. I'll keep an eye on everything. So I'll let you know if anything comes up. Uh, and if anybody in the Zoom call gets disconnected, just go ahead and pop back in. Um, and uh, typically, if you're not speaking, maybe keep yourself muted just so you don't distract the whoever is speaking. And uh, I want to also mention that uh, one of our panelists tonight, and we're very pleased to have with him with us tonight, uh, is a gentleman I was pleased enough to work with uh, um, back in my days, uh, but former Deputy Chief Greg Hesnes. Uh, thank you, Greg, for joining us. Sure. Uh, Greg will be an active participation uh, in our conversation. So I am going to, at this point, Josh, turn it over to you uh, so you can uh, spend some time talking about the uh, public safety uh, uh, model, public safety department model. 
Sure. Uh, so my name is Josh Martin. I'm a resident of Minneapolis in the Kingfield neighborhood. I have followed the discussion surrounding the public safety charter amendment with interest since July of 2020. I've recently researched several questions regarding the structure of public safety in other cities in Minnesota and in the United States. This included research into what other cities have a Department of Public Safety. I recently developed a document which describes those findings for the benefit of the public, and we'll attempt to summarize them here. Uh, I think there will still be some time to maybe talk in a bit more detail about some of the particular cities listed here. For the nationwide search, I included cities with a population over 150,000. There are 180 such cities in total, and 12 of them have a Department of Public Safety. For Minnesota, I included cities with a population over 20,000. There are 59 such cities in total, and nine of them have a Department of Public Safety. The cities in Minnesota I found with the Department of Public Safety are Cottage Grove, Fridley, Lionel Lakes, Maplewood, Mankato, New Brighton, Plymouth, Richfield, and Woodbury. In addition, the city of Brooklyn Center is currently in the process of creating a Department of Public Safety. The cities in the United States I found with the Department of Public Safety are Akron, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, Denver, Colorado, Lancaster, California, Lexington, Kentucky, Newark, New Jersey, Palmdale, California, Peterson, New Jersey, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Providence, Rhode Island, St. Louis, Missouri, and Sunnyvale, California. The specific functions contained within a Department of Public Safety vary significantly from city to city, and the reasons for such a department also vary. In some cases, the primary reason for the creation of such a department is for cost savings and administrative convenience, while others appear to fully embrace the idea of creating a holistic department with various approaches to public safety. Almost all of the cities I found included police within the Department of Public Safety, with the only exceptions being some cities in Los Angeles County in California, which instead fulfilled law enforcement functions by contracting with the County Sheriff's Department. The most common other functions that were included were other emergency service functions, such as firefighting services, emergency medical services, 911 dispatch, and emergency management. Other cities included a broader array of functions within the department and may include areas such as animal control, building inspections, health services, licensing, neighborhood relations, special event permitting, violence prevention, and youth programs. Almost all of the cities in Minnesota had the commissioner of the department also serve as the chief of police. In the cities in other states, which are more comparable in size to Minneapolis, there was generally a separate head of the police division who reported to the commissioner. However, the commissioner generally had significant prior experience in law enforcement. The full document is publicly available and I'd be happy to share it with any interested persons. In the event question two is adopted, it would seem beneficial for the city to consult with leaders of other departments of public safety and find aspects which work well. The cities of Denver and St. Louis in particular appear to have structures which most closely resemble the structure which has been discussed for Minneapolis. And I've pasted the link to the document in the chat. Uh, I think we still have a little bit of time, so I might go over a few cities which could be representative of, of the broader whole. Um, we'll, we should probably cover a few of the Minnesota cities. Um, those tend to be more of the emergency um, services uh, type and not the broader departments. 
Um, so the two of the largest cities in Minnesota, which have a Department of Public Safety structure, are the city of Plymouth, with a population of around 80,000. Um, the Plymouth Public Safety Department consists of the Fire Department, Police Department, and Emergency Management Services for the city of Plymouth. Police and Fire Departments were merged in 2015 to streamline services and resources, and uh, that department is housed in the Public Safety Building. Um, the Director of Public Safety also serves as the Chief of Police for Plymouth. Uh, the city of Woodbury is a population of around 75,000. The Woodbury Public Safety Department uh, is unique in how police, fire, and emergency medical services are delivered to the community. Police officers, firefighters, and paramedics work and train together each and every day. Many of the city's police officers work in dual roles as police officers and paramedics or police officers and firefighters. This integrated approach not only saves money, it saves lives. Uh, and these descriptions are largely from the city's website, unless I had known otherwise. Um, the director of public safety is also the chief of police for, for Woodbury. Those are fairly representative of the structures that tend to be found in Minnesota. Um, to give some examples of cities elsewhere in the country. Um, I mentioned Denver and St. Louis. Uh, so Denver has a population of about 700,000 uh, located in the state of Colorado. The Department of Public Safety unifies all the agencies tasked with ensuring Denver is the safest and most welcoming city in the nation. Denver's Public Safety Department includes Denver Police, Denver Fire, Denver 911, Denver Sheriff, Community Corrections, Public Safety Youth Programs, and the Gang Reduction Initiative of Denver. Uh, department. Uh, DOS also oversees the uh, public safety cadet program. Uh, the, in this case, the director of public safety is not also the chief of police, as I mentioned, for the um, other cities in the U.S. That tends to be a separate position. And in this particular case, um, the current director does not seem to have significant prior public, um, prior police experience. Um, and St. Louis was the other one I mentioned earlier. Uh, St. Louis is a population of around 300,000 and is located in Missouri. Uh, the Department of Public Safety is the largest municipal government department in the city of St. Louis, overseeing the fire, uh, fire department, the Metropolitan Police Department, six major divisions, two bureaus, a correctional institution, and the city jail. That description is from their website. Um, so in addition to the items noted above, the other divisions that they mention uh, provide services such as building inspections, disaster preparedness and response, uh, liquor license enforcement, neighborhood relations, and special event permitting. Um, and in that case, the director of public safety is not also the chief of police, but the current director does have police experience. So I think those are representative of the types of structures we tend to see in larger cities. They tend to be more expansive than what we see in uh, smaller cities where it tends to be uh, police, fire, and other emergency services. Uh, Josh, thank you very much. I think that's really helpful to people. I don't think there's been near enough discussion of the experiences elsewhere. So I, I, that's really helpful. Uh, Walt, uh, you I know I've given a lot of thought to, as I said, large system architecture, uh, culture of organizations. Uh, and I know you could spend a lot more than 10 minutes, but in the 10 minutes that we've allotted you, which I know is a challenge, uh, maybe to help set the stage for the conversation we want to have, uh, if you could give us some of your thoughts about what you see uh, from your work as the type of systemic change that, uh, that we need uh, in Minneapolis. 
I think you're still on mute, Walt. Yeah, I was trying to keep, keep out of people's way. Um, uh, yeah, I want to start with a shout out. You asked me to talk for 10 minutes on police reform. Well, I can scarcely confine myself to 10 minutes on anything. But uh, I would like to begin with a shout out. First of all, my organization's Center for Policy Design is not connected with Hamlin. It's an independent uh, nonprofit, nonpartisan uh, organization uh, interested in policy design. And if you Google up the Center for Policy Design, you will find prominently displayed there a new paper titled Straight Talk on Police Reform, the Charter Amendments and the Election. And in that paper, I clarify what police reform actually is and then how each of the amendments might help or hamstring genuine police reform. So I will leave my thoughts about the charter amendments to that paper in the panel. Uh, so let's talk about police reform. Police reform is the number one priority of Minneapolis. Not only are citizens being harmed, but if violence and crime are not curbed in this city, business and the well-off will flee to the suburbs, undercutting our tax base and employment base and worsening life for all the remaining residents. Curbing and violence is the job of police. Therefore, police Minneapolis requires an effective police force. It just does not need the dangerous dysfunctional police force it has now, whose undue violence and racism have for decades harmed and alienated many citizens, particularly those of color, and cost the city and its taxpayers millions in damages. We need a reformed police force of excellence that this city and its many good officers deserve. There's much confusion about police reform, and I want to remove one source of confusion at the outset. Despite all the heated re rhetoric, a Department of Public Safety by itself is not police reform, nor a substitute for police reform, nor should it be confused with police reform. It depends on what the Charter Amendments pass and on the substance act was actions of the mayor and council, whether such a department would encourage genuine police reform or hamstring it. What is police reform then? Police reform is enduring change in the daily behavior of police on duty. That accomplishes three goals. It reduces crime and violence. It constantly minimizes police force and racism and treats all citizens, rich or poor, white or of color with dignity and respect. And finally, it wins the police, the trust and cooperation of the community, which is a major factor in preventing and solving crime, tips from the community, particularly communities of color, and thereby garners officers the legitimacy, respect, and gratitude they deserve for their courageous service on our behalf. That enduring change of behavior is what police reform is, and those three goals are what that change of behavior must produce to be called police reform. How do we get there? Police reform requires two big steps. Step one is a complete change in the present policing approach. And step two is a thoroughgoing makeover of the officer personnel that retains and hires good officers and removes all the unfit and insubordinate officers who will not follow the new approach. The Minneapolis department presently uses a terrible policing approach predominant throughout this country. It's not just Minneapolis. It's self-congratulatory, calls itself warrior policing. Our former chief of police calls it thumpers, not warriors. And it conducts a war on crime. 
It encourages undue police violence and racism. It attracts bad apples and trains good apples. And we have many fine officers to act like bad officers. How do we know? Okay, regarding police violence, police in the United States kill six times more residents per capita than any other developed country and 10 to 20 times more than most. But we have no less crime and vastly more murder. So our police are violent, but no more effective. Regarding racism, I don't think most white Americans have any grasp how racially biased warrior policing is. It's systemically highly racist, even if individual officers are not racist because it deliberately and excessively targets black neighborhoods. For example, Minneapolis police stop and search black drivers at 29, 29 times the rate they stop white drivers for equipment violations. Nationally, black Americans are two and a half times as likely as white Americans to be shot and killed by police. Research shows these black Americans fatally shot by police are no more likely to be posing an imminent lethal threat to the officers at the moment they are killed than white Americans fatally shot by police. That means when you adjust for the degree of threat, okay, are they armed, are they unarmed? Are they shooting at the police? Are they threatening the police? Are they fleeing the police? Are they, do, are they violent criminals? Are they nonviolent criminals? Do they have no criminal record? Black people are more often targeted for use of police force than white people. For example, unarmed black men are three times more likely to be killed by police than unarmed white men. Now, police excuse this targeting of black neighborhoods saying, well, crime is higher there. And in many it is, but research finds no relationship between crime rates by race and this high racial bias. White officers dispatched to black neighborhoods fired their guns five times more often than black officers dispatched for similar calls to the same neighborhood. Blacks are by four to one the principal targets of warrior policing. Blacks and whites engage in drug offenses, possession and sales at roughly comparable rates. But depending on the state, blacks are arrested two to 11 times more often than whites because they are targeted more often. The courts, incidentally, are also systemically racially biased. For comparable offenses, Blacks are incarcerated five times more often and sentences are two and a half times longer than for whites. Now, that means we have this terrible approach which we have to change. Police are trained in this approach. It's inherently, they, they spend 90% of their time on force, no time on interacting with citizens. And they're trained that criminals are everywhere and out to assassinate police and any false move means the officer must shoot first to protect themselves. My point is all who support the police and everybody should must remember we do not support our police by blindly supporting bad policing and bad officers. We support them by supporting good policing and good officers. We support them by supporting police reform. And so the state, and official, the state and city officials must recognize that if the policing approach itself is bad, their current efforts to legislate police reform by banning this or that specific misconduct are going to fail. It is the warrior approach and mindset of the problem, and this will always produce misconduct, too numerous to list in any law. They can't be disciplined or legislated the way it must be replaced. The, rem the remedy is a good policing approach that alters the culture. So here are the two big steps. 
Step one, what is the new approach we need? There is such a new approach. It's called the Guardian Procedural Justice Policing Approach. Research shows it works very well in the few places where it has been established. For example, in Camden, New Jersey, murder rates have been halved, open-air drug markets eliminated, and the solved crime rate has been raised from 15 to 65%. That's the best poster example of this kind of policing. Police use of force and killings have been significantly reduced, and people of this high minority, high poverty, and formerly excessively high crime city, it's still high crime, but significantly down, have begun, <laughs> begun to feel safe enough to let their children out of doors and now trust and cooperate with their police. Well, those are the three goals we want. How do they do it? Not just by initial training, but by day-to-day -day management. The Guardian Police principle is do no harm. Everyone comes home alive at night, not only officers, but suspects and bystanders. Officers are kept fully practiced in the use of force. They must deal with violent people. But unlike morning or training, warrior training, they are equally drilled in interacting with citizens. And it goes on every day. Every incidence of force is reviewed by the officer and his superior, not to find fault, but to find out if they could have done better, used less force, use more patience and, and restraint. So if you want more on that, just bring up J. Scott Gaunt Thompson, the brilliant chief of police of Camden and listen to him describe how they got there and how it works. Great stuff, Walt, maybe just another minute or so. Okay, well, this brings us There's to step two. And this is, where, this is where the problem lies. You cannot adopt this approach unless you can remove officers who are unfit and insubordinate and try to undermine it. We have tried in Minneapolis to go somewhere towards this approach, to abandon warrior training in favor of a better approach. And it failed because the chief can't remove warrior-minded officers here. So if we're going to have police reform, we need a frontal attack on all these subtle obstacles that prevent the chief and mayor from moving problem officers. Otherwise- That's why we're, that's why we're here, Walt. I'm gonna stop you there because okay. great. All right. Great information, great information. All right, and you can go to the paper and find the rest of the statement. <laughs> and and uh, no, it's it's a, a great way to, to kind of really set the stage of the conversation we want to have. And and Walt's paper is phenomenal. And, and Val, I'm hoping we can uh, uh, find a way to put that up for our uh, uh, viewers now and in the future uh, as well. Uh, but I, I do uh, want to jump to our conversation with our candidates. Uh, and I, I wanna make sure, uh, former Deputy Chief uh, Hestis, that, yes. that, that you can be a part of that conversation. Okay. Thank you. And, and uh, as we move forward, uh, please jump in with questions and concerns that, that, that you may have, because uh, you have a very important perspective to add to this conversation. Um, so uh, I'm going to start with you, AJ, and then and then Kate. We'll let you jump in, uh, uh, and we'll start with maybe a way to get us uh, uh, going here is is just to give you a chance to, uh, in your case, AJ, uh, what are the two or three most important reasons that that you oppose the public safety amendment at least <coughs> drafted. Yeah, so, so the number one reason for me, and, and I have to say this, um, so for me, process dictates everything. 
Um, I think uh, communities of color have to have a visible ownership at, you know, creating something that's going to be transformative. So, and without that voice at the table in the exception, it's, it's problematic for me. I think we're not really getting to the real problem here. Um, but then outside of that, substantively, I think, I think the professor will put it well. I mean, uh, on my website is that actual language about removing ourselves away from this warrior style types of training and model of policing to something aligned along the guardianships. And I think um, that doesn't necessarily translate with this amendment. And I got, I got tremendous concerns with, you know, 14 bosses. Um, I think that's ultimately going to be problematic in the execution of peace and safety in the city of Minneapolis. Um, and uh, for me, you know, we have to we have to have meaningful, I would say, substantive transformative reforms. But we can't do that just knee jerk, you know, policy or amendment creations through this process. It has to be done in a very thoughtful way. Thank you, AJ. And same question, but in reverse, uh, Kate. What is it about the second public safety charter amendment that you believe is critical to make the changes we need to make? Yeah, well, thank you for the conversation tonight. I'm already learning a lot. And I'm Kate Knuth. I'm running for Mayor Minneapolis. And you know, I support Charter Amendment 2 fundamentally because I think we need to move beyond the status quo of where we've been swirling around for, frankly, a number of years and decades in Minneapolis. And I think um, we are having a lot of debates and dialogues and you might even say fights, but ultimately I think every person in the city agrees that where we are with policing and public safety in Minneapolis right now is not working to keep everyone safe and it is actively harming some people. So as a, a systems person, a systems change person, the purpose of what we're trying to achieve really matters and we're not trying to achieve policing. Policing is in service of creating overall safety in our community and that that's a big part of the reason I support a Department of Public Safety. Um, I also support it because I have concerns about having a single person with full authority over MPD and the mayor. That's sort of out of the norm of democratic practice and design in terms of shared powers. And I have concern about um, lack of transparency, lack of accountability, and just not basic policymaking process where we can can engage with the people of Minneapolis in making our uh, public safety and police department work more effectively. Um, and then finally, I do think um, getting rid of the ma mandatory minimum number of police staffing from the charter, we are um, out of the norm again without the only city with that in our city charter. And I think it equalizes the power a little bit uh, in useful ways. Now, I've been also very clear that I see police as an essential part of a new Department of Public Safety. And I've been very clear about funding um, at current levels. And just so people are very clear in understanding, we're funded, uh, we're, we're down significant number of officers from where we're currently funded at because so many officers have been uh, leaving the force for various reasons. So um, I think overall, this gives us the best framework from which to move forward on real um, holistic public safety and significant police reform as uh, part of it. And you know, I, people say, well, what do you do if it doesn't pass? And I say, I absolutely, we keep pushing, um, but I support Charter Amendment 2 because I think it gives us the best framework and tools to move forward in the ways we need to in the city right now. Uh, Greg, I wanna ask you uh, if I could, uh, uh, as a former deputy chief and with a long career of service in 
public safety, uh, perhaps ask, give you the opportunity to express, first of all, your concerns uh, uh, about the second Carter Amendment and, and what you would want to hear from the candidate that might address those concerns. Okay, thank you, Paul. Uh, well, a few things, as, as I was mentioning before we started here, I actually ran a Department of Public Safety when I left the city and I was the Assistant VP and Police Chief at the U for 12 years. And my uh, Public Safety Department consisted of police, emergency management, uh, emergency communications and central security. Some of those were, were system-wide functions. What I'm seeing, I have two, two concerns I'll say. What I'm seeing in the proposal, is a public safety department that will be the police and something else. Not, not all those related uh, functions that uh, are typically part of a public safety department. An opportunity to talk to uh, council member Jenkins at Lindale Open Streets about this. And she had explained to me that uh, the city attorney had counseled them not to be very specific about how the department could be structured, which, you know, to quote my old uh, boss, Kathy O'Brien, the city attorney's there to give us advice not to make our decisions. So I disagree with that. But I would like to see uh, a more fleshed out department. Like I even said to Andrea, you can't even include the fire department without changing the charter again. You know, so I would like to see a lot more uh, developed. And I, I have told you, Paul, I do not dispute the uh, uh, ability of a public safety department to be very valuable. Like you said, I ran one for 12 years. So... There's that. Uh, and the second thing, uh, most people who are proponents of this amendment uh, either gloss over or ignore entirely is the violence that a lot of the city is experiencing right now. Um, I don't see how, honestly, I don't see how we restore safety in the city without a greatly restored police department. As you recall, I was a deputy chief uh, during the murder Apples years. And part of my responsibility, well, we needed three things to get over that. First of all, we needed the resources. We hired a lot of police officers. Uh, we needed a strategy, and that was uh, code four adopted from Comstat New York, which was not, if I can just say, was not uh, broken windows theory. That was, I said, that's, that's kind of a blunt instrument and code four was a scalpel to go exactly after the issue. And thirdly, probably most important of all, uh, was community support. I mean, we did so much outreach to the communities. The mayor did, you know, uh, north side, south side. I spoke to all the church leaders, particularly the black church leaders in the city. Uh, so what I'm saying is we have on one occasion clawed our way back from a really serious crime and violence problem. But those are the elements I think that need to be part of it. Well, thank you so much, Greg. I think, uh, one, Kate, I guess my question for you, and, and I've confessed to everyone that I'm a very recent and perhaps hesitant convert to the second uh, proposal. And candidly, the biggest problem I've had with it is the extent to which so many of those who have advocated for it, uh, quite frankly, have, in my view, minimized uh, the need for law enforcement. And, and, um, when I tell individuals that I support the second charter change, they frankly don't really talk about the merits of the amendment, but they accuse me of insensitivity to the violence that's going on out there. Um, and, but I think the, the kernel of truth in that is, is 
the, the, the communication of those advocating for the second change from my perspective has kind of been missing that component of sympathy for the, the victims of crime and, and a recognition of this, uh, you know, and as a prosecutor, there are people that, you know, we can address with mental health and others, but there are others that are just simply dangerous. And um, how, how do you address that? Because that, that really is the primary, I think, concern people have about that second change is what people see as the underlying philosophy or ideology of so many that are supporting it. Yeah, well, I appreciate you asking this question directly because I am very clear that I think it is unacceptable to have kids shot and killed in the city, the level of gun violence and community violence Sorry, uh, light just went out. <laughs> we're on. We're back on. Um, and and when I, you know, when I'm out knocking on doors or at community events, um, particularly on the north side, I am hearing, you know, significant concerns about gun violence. It's probably the biggest. It is not probably. It is absolutely the biggest thing I hear concerns about. And we need to take that very seriously. And I think um, when I'm out listening like regardless of proposals and details what i hear is people want to be well one reduce the gun violence and two be able to call the city for help and not fear who's going to show up and know that it's going to be a useful helpful response and that to me is so eminently reasonable like that is absolutely what we want as a city and you know i digging into the research about how do we prevent violence um, some of it is policing, like it's, and we absolutely need to dig in and increase our investigation and our solve rates. We need to have a quick response if violence is underway. Um, and investing in economic security, investing in young people and youth jobs, um, those are proven things that help reduce violence over time. You know, and it's not like this is not stuff we haven't done in the city before. You know, the Office of Youth Violence Prevention was back back in the mid 2000s and it saw significant success. And I think that's um, something that came out of our health department and, and another time when we were dealing with increase in violent crime. And I think um, we're, we're not looking to do things totally that are, that are totally untried or un, un, um, untested. But we do have to ask ourselves, I think, to do things differently because the system as it's operating right now is not keeping people safe. It's racially unjust in the ways that the previous presenter talked about. And, you know, one of the things I'm increasingly concerned about, we're not literally not going to be able to afford it in our city budget with the combination of police brutality payouts and um, workers compensation. And it's significant financial risk from a from a fiscal management perspective. So. Um, absolutely addressing violence is at the core of what we need to do. And I try to be very explicit with that and remind people that if all we're talking about is police is the only response to reducing violence, we're not having the whole conversation. It's an important part of the conversation, but we're not having the whole conversation we need to have. And AJ, I know from our conversations that we've had that you have uh, talked a lot about the, the process and the need for a process. Uh, I have to ask you, um, and Kate, at some point you might want to comment on this too, there's a lot of confusion going on right now with what appear to be some directions from the city attorney. Uh, Greg mentioned those. Uh, I was pretty startled to hear council members claim that they were told they, they actually couldn't plan 
for a Department of Public Safety because the city attorney, uh, at least many are saying, have told them that, no, you have to wait till it passes to even working on this. That, I think that's just really strange to people. But I guess my question for you, AJ, was uh, assuming, you know, if, if you're successful as, as, as mayor, um, <laughs> would you... Uh, essentially tell the city attorney, well, you could take that opinion and put it in your pocket. We're going to work on this. Um, because that seems to be some real confusion right now um, where the city council is saying they just have been told they can't even work on this until it's passed. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, this is the first time I've been actually just making a lot of phone calls today. So I'm not following current media uh, with the city council. I would say though, Vote question one, uh, we do need to have a realignment within our city government. But for me, honestly, you know, to the point that you made, Paul, just a second ago when you said that you're just a recent convert to the amendment, and for many people, you know, the hesitations with supporting it is because a lot of communities of colors, voices are left out. I mean, and there's a, there's, when, when we connect this issue of crime rise, right, it's communities of color that are calling out for that attention communities of color that are saying, we understand that we want to do something completely transformative for black and brown communities, because this is not an issue that is burdening the mainstream audience of white folks in the Southwest and the Comas and other communities in the city of Minneapolis. And I think the broader community has to come to that realization, right? And understand who really has a stake in ownership on the true ramifications and the actual effects, the net impacts, right? And that's why I'm trying to center this conversation you know, running for mayor in this moment, it wasn't something that I wanted to do. It was because fundamentally, if we're gonna keep talking about fundamentals, communities of colors are continuing to be ignored. I mean, if you just listen to them, we'll start getting to the place that everybody's at. I mean, when we're talking about addressing crime right now. That's a priority that's on the top and centered on black and brown communities, but in particular, black communities. When we're talking about last year and the uprising and what triggered it, communities of color have been saying for decades, as Katie said, right, that we need to have transformative change. And I don't think the city has ever really got to a point where saying, okay, how are we gonna do this? And are we gonna actually let this community lead on this issue? And my message is we have to have, we have to find inherent value, right? In that actual ownership with that creation of this new system. Now, I'm a fan of the new Department of Public Safety. I'm the guy that said abolish the MPD last year, right? So it's not that we have, we don't need a new department. It's not that we shouldn't have a new department. It's we should have a thoughtful plan with communities centered in the conversation, making sure that we do build that fundamental trust. That integration that uh, Gregory was talking about is fundamental, right? That's again, absent in the amendment. But I don't even analyze the substance of parts of the amendment because it's dead in water when it doesn't meet that threshold of community engagement and validation, right? And, and to me, that has to be apparent to the whole city, right? I think that is really poor leadership to take us down a path where we're going to go and create a new system, maybe have it passed, we have to you know, go down this path. But ultimately, we're, we, we haven't really built trust for communities of color. We're not talking about substantively that cultural change. How hard is it gonna be to integrate and what is it gonna look like, right? And the big element, and I wanted to ask Josh just in his research, right? You know, the differences between, you know, different departments of public safety throughout the country. I, I was interested to ask, you know, 
what is the cost for that? What variables lead to it, right? Because I would assume that probably a lot of culture has to dictate, demographics have to dictate, population, I think he was suggesting earlier, have to dictate. And when I just look at the truth, honest culture of the city of Minneapolis's culture politically, but more importantly, the city council, I mean, I think it would be irresponsible to say to have 14 bosses and to take away that, 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 that mandatory minimum that uh, Kate said was something that I think should be removed. And she's correct. She's correct on it's not like that for every other major city. It's not like that around, around the country. And I think there's a reason for it, right? And, and, I, and I make the connection, right, when, when I'm analyzing this and saying, okay, if I'm coming into the, into the mayor's office, what perspective should I have? And I think the biggest elephant in the room is those racial disparities within the city of Minneapolis under you know, our current system where there is a lot of 14 bosses outside the MPD, right? So, so I think you know, all the points that the proponents are making for yes for Minneapolis are fundamentally correct. We do need a new department. We do need to have a public health approach to, to policing. We need to integrate those things as, as Gregory said, but, but we need to validate that system and we need to be thoughtful in it, right? And, and, and as far as policing is concerned, I mean, we know that those 14 bosses don't work in the other departments because of those racial disparities. So I just want to say we've been experimenting. I mean, this, this country is a democracy. We have, we have layers of government. Uh, and, and I think the city of Minneapolis has experimented far too long with this type of separation of churches and of, of powers where the executive has more. And I think where they're leading us with this amendment is exactly that, right? I, I don't want to go down having the last remaining department where there's really just one executive uh, overseeing it and, and, and executing it to not have that experimentation with all the other departments. I think it's just, it's not good for communities of color. So, so Greg, I want to, again, bring you back into this conversation and give our candidates a chance to perhaps respond. I mean, you have a long history, of course, with Minneapolis Police Department. One of the things that, that I've heard, I imagine you've heard, um, is that, you know, the, the morale of a lot of the, the newer officers uh, uh, is extremely low. Um, a gentleman by the name of Bill Doherty of Braver Angels made a really interesting comment to me. He said that that uh, he's, he's had a program that involves uh, connecting uh, BIPOC members of the community with um, with law enforcement. And uh, there was a conversation he was involved in and some of the, the same assumptions, this is Bill talking, same of the same assumptions that, that so sadly so many people make about uh, black men, people make about police officers. Um, I found that interesting, um, that, you know, that people have this, uh, these, these, these prejudices about police officers. Uh, and, and there was almost a, but, but, but I guess, the, how do you see that, Greg? What, what do you see the impact of these, of, of the current state of things as far as the morale of the officers to, to think about what Walt was talking to us about, um, those officers who wanna be guardians, not warriors, uh, how do we heal in such a way that, those officers, in fact, want to stay with the department and that we can recruit new officers. Yeah. Well, understood. Um, boy, I would say what, what uh, disappoints me maybe the most is all the things we built that did that are gone. Mm. Community Crime Prevention Safe, uh, the Police Activities League, the Community Engagement Team, 
the bike cops for kids, all those things that not only engage kids, but also expose these officers to, to uh, residents of the city. You know, for example, of course, I, I'm a city kid, went to Minneapolis Central with Arredondo and Sales Belton and all. So well, it was a time when that was only one of two integrated schools in the city. But uh, uh, so we got to, you know, we got to know the community came up with it. Um, one of the things I, I, I didn't hear uh, Walt touch on necessarily was um, with the creation of the post board, the truth is very few candidates, licensable candidates come from this city or any city. They are uh, you know, predominantly you know, suburban or even exurban uh, in their background. So as we know also, uh, there is a law preventing residency rules. Now there's pros and cons to residency anyway, but it's off the table for now. So to me, that suggests we gotta find a way to connect these uh, young officers to the city to dispel those stereotypes they might have of our, of our communities. Um, you know, just as a first step. Uh, you know, another than that, I think, um, you know, the, the morale, of course, has taken a hit. I mean, I, and what's really irritated me a couple of times when I've heard council members say, well, you know, they're, they're engaged in a work slowdown. You know, and the, I still have my connections. The officers that are there are just working unbelievably hard. I, um, uh, I made a request for response time information it used to be the, one of the most common police and fire performance measures that we just gave people because we wanted them to know and they hadn't heard anything about it. Uh, so I had to make a freedom of information request. I made it in July and I finally got my information at the end of September. And for priority one calls, um, you know, the most serious call that people need help now, uh, before George Floyd, we had gotten to an 11 minute average response time for priority one calls. We're now at 15 minute response times for priority one calls. You know, nobody's doing a work slowdown on that. That's just, that's just how short they are. So um, the other half of that, like I said, mentioned the city council uh, and alleging that there's a work slowdown in, in process. I don't think they can put together their actions in Potterhorn Park a year ago and where we are today. I mean, if any of us had a board of directors that we worked for say, you know, we don't value you very much and we don't even know that you're gonna to need to be around here for much longer. I mean, I'd start looking for another position as probably some of them have. So yeah, morale is a real factor. Um, but again, there's, you know, as we rebuild the department, we've got to connect these people to the city. This isn't anything new. I started in 1975. A progressive police chief at the time, Jack Jensen, took everybody in my rookie class and during rookie school sent us out for three weeks to work in community agencies. And we all came back, explained what all these community agencies did, and we had relationships for years forward. Thanks, Greg. And, and, and Kate, I guess to put you on the hot seat for a minute here, um, not a question I haven't asked others like Councilmember Gordon. Um, I know you, I don't believe you were at that rally of Powderhorn Park, you know, but um, there certainly are a lot of people that perhaps might support your campaign that, that either at the rally or uh, agreed with the language that was using, that was used. Uh, if, if you're elected mayor, uh, 
you know, having run as a someone in favor of this charter amendment, uh, what kind of overtures can you make to law enforcement? Uh, there's going to be a lot of skepticism. You know, a lot of the the officers are going to say this is someone who, who wanted us to abolish police. Fair or not, that's going to be what some are yeah. going to be saying. Uh, how how would you navigate that? How would you, uh, to Greg's point, how would you communicate to officers that you do value them, you do want them around? Um, yeah. What steps might you take to do that? Yeah, well, I really appreciate the question because I think a lot of the work we need to do right now is bridge um, divides and across, I think, actually, I think a lot of the divides in our city right now are generational, but, and, and I, I will get to the direct question you're asking, but I think it's important to remember why we are even having this conversation about Charter Amendment 2 right now. There's been a lot of focus on the council, but this Charter Amendment came to the ballot because over 20,000 people signed a petition to get it on the ballot because of the frustration with the, the relationship and the function between um, MPD and the community. And so I think that that is really important to take seriously. And a lot of the leader, and, and, and these are not like you just put out an online, uh, online petition. These had to be collected in person in the cold during a global pandemic. So it took a lot of work by a significant number of people, many of them people of color, to get us to the point where this is on the ballot. So I just I think we need to ground ourselves in that reality that that, that is the frustration and the anger that is out in our community. And, and I think we need to take that very seriously and we need to take very seriously um, the fact that officers are um, essential public servants in our community. And I have been someone who throughout my entire career has been very clear about how much I value public servants and public workers. Um, and I, I grew up basically the child of bureaucrats and public school teachers. And I see police officers in that same category. The officers we want in our community and that I think are essential for our community are public servants fundamentally at the core. And that is how I want our officers to see themselves. And um, so I think I absolutely have a track record as a public leader, as an elected official, who's been very much a staunch supporter of whether it's school teachers or bureaucrats and state agencies or city employees. Um, we absolutely need a leader who is clear in communicating about how important public's public workers are to the success of our city. And police are a unique part of that group of public workers, but I think it's super important. And, you know, I'm really actually concerned more broadly in our city government about the morale of city employees overall. You know, I think we have all been through this global pandemic. Um, there have I, I know, a number of people leaving city government in pretty significant leadership positions. We have four interim directors right now of departments, which I'm not sure if we have a civil rights interim director because I'm not sure if the one who left was replaced. That's I have not been able to get that question answered. It seems like it should be an easy one to get answered, but um, I have not been able to get it answered. Um, and so, so we have a lot of work to do as a city, and I would, as mayor, to dig in to make sure that the people who work to keep our city working every day, police officers, public works employees who pick 
who, you know, who collect garbage, traffic enforcement, who make sure people are moving around safely. You know, there are so many amazing people who go to work every day to make the city of Minneapolis work. And we absolutely, as mayor, I will be a champion and a partner with, with those folks. But I, I don't want us to forget how we got here in terms of literally thousands of people organizing to put the question on the ballot that keeping the system the same is not okay. And I think we're actually really unified on the trying to operate in the same way is not acceptable right now for the people of Minneapolis and, and frankly for police themselves. So um, I think that's, that's how I would answer that question pretty directly. So uh, we're focusing mostly on the second charter amendment, but I want to move to the first one because there's a disagreement with at least the two mayoral candidates that have blessed us with their presence on that question. And, but since we are focusing on policing, AJ, uh, from a police perspective, and I, I want Greg's perspective on this too, I know he has one, but uh, from, a, from a standpoint of public safety overall, AJ, why, why do you believe that um, the first charter change, which I also support for the record, uh, why do you think that as mayor, you'll uh, be better able to bring reform to the city if the, uh, if the executive authority of the mayor uh, overall is uh, is strengthened in the city. Well, thank you for that question. I mean, I think I think the efficacy of the MPD really depends on that culture shift because it is the one, the only department left out right now. All the other departments are run unorthodox. Uh, it's run outside of tra uh, traditional bounds, and I think this this correction right that makes it much. I would say, with the proven record of what a executive mayor, legislative council looks like it's going to be, I would say the best asset to the next mayor to actually do that cultural changes to really promote if the Department of Public Safety passes to build trust into it, but to also to incorporate those other aspects of uh, public health and public safety. Uh, I think, you know, for me, there's, there's, again, a little bit of, you know, shifting the ball there when it comes to, I would say the opposition against Charter One, um, it's not a concentration of power. This is not going to sway the city council. I mean, we're talking about an executive role. I mean, businesses are run like this, board of directors, there's people that hold the, the mayor or the executive responsible. The people should be able to do that first and foremost, but then the separation, they still have the power of the purse. The audit uh, uh, department would be strengthened um, they still have ordinances, so they're still crafting the legislation. So I don't really understand what all the, you know, hostility towards this, I would say, simple and neural correction would be. And for me, I'm looking forward to that type of, I would say, more executive uh, uh, tools in the tool shed of the mayor's office to be able to do that transformative change. So actually, uh uh, former Deputy Chief Hestness has a question here in the chat. I, I can answer that question for him. Uh, Kate, he asked whether you are undecided on the first charter change. I know you recently uh, announced that you are opposed to uh, yep. the charter for change. Uh, here's my question for you, again, to put you on the spot. You're elected mayor um, and you have a, arguably a, a, a mandate to lead the reform of the uh, public safety system in Minneapolis. You uh, uh, work with the council to create uh, the new Department of Public Safety. Um, uh, Charter for Change does not pass, but number two does pass. Um, and uh, you appoint the new commissioner uh, and then 
if it's two or three years, I guess, at some point anyway, there needs to be a reappointment of that commissioner and you find out you have three council members on the executive committee or seven on the, uh, on the council as a whole and they tell you, sorry, Madam Mayor, we don't like your commissioner anymore. Your commissioner has to go. So uh, wouldn't that reduce your ability to fully own your executive authority if, uh, if you know, council members periodically can simply decide that even if you, uh, even if you like your department head and think they're doing a good job, that they have to go. Yeah, well, I appreciate the question, Paul, and I'm I'm happy I'm happy to specifically answer that. But I I think it's important about my decision making in um, in Charter Amendment One this year. If we're going to dig in, um, you know, I I was um, considering different aspects of it for for quite some time. I'm not totally opposed to quote unquote a strong mayor charter amendment. I have significant concerns about this particular drafting of a charter amendment and at the time we're in in the city's history and the work we really need to do quite frankly to build trust in our city and our in our local democracy overall. So in terms of the specifics about this particular charter amendment, I have concerns about having to go through the mayor for data or for access to city staff and policy development. I think in theory it could work well. And I could also see a mayor kind of playing favorites among a council. And I, and so part of the reason, uh, one of the arguments I would make is, is I, I am someone who, who's worked in large bureaucracies, likes to dig in on details, was thoroughly enjoying the presentation earlier about systems change um, and, and so getting it right and getting that culture right from the beginning would be very important for it to work effectively. And I'm not totally sure if that will happen or not. You know, the other piece of it is um, as the city has moved in a more progressive direction, as younger people have gotten more involved, um, it feels it, I, I think there's a lack of trust in how this was put forward by the charter and frankly, the significant amounts of money being put behind it, where we're not even quite sure, you know, $130,000 from the chamber, but who knows where that came from. I think it undermines some of our ability to build the trust that we need, um, particularly in this moment. And so, you know, I, I have said for a long time, the people of the city will decide and they absolutely will. Um, and, uh, but as I started weighing the, the different parts of a decision um, that's where I came down, you know, in terms of the specific about um, firing a department head, you know, actually the piece that I'm more interested, you know, that you could have a department head that you liked fired by the council or the executive committee. Uh, you know, we're seeing this weaponized at the state level right now um, with commissioners not being confirmed. It's highly problematic for the function of our state government. But honestly, as a city employee, um, and I'm a former city employee myself, one of the concerns I had is actually the mayor not being able to uh, fire department head that wasn't working effectively unless you get enough votes to do so. That is the bigger concern I have, frankly, than the council firing um, at this point, just because I think that is a really important part of executive authority. Like that, that, that is a place where I would be very interested in potentially changing our city charter. So, um, you know, and I, and, and even if we don't, I, I want to just, I, I do need to run here. Um, and I appreciate this is digging in so deeply on the charter amendments. I loved getting the presentations at the beginning. Josh, you have to run, Kate, and, but I, yeah. do, I, I, I don't want to let you go. And I want to give AJ a, a chance to comment 
because I yeah. actually was got a call myself from a reporter, which is always funny to me because I always figure that they're calling me because they can't get anybody else. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Calls. Yeah. <laughs> Even if none of it. But no, uh, the, the latest issues, Kay, I just want you to comment about the ethics complaint filed against the chief. And I have to be frank, I was alarmed and, and uh, it's become public now, but I was alarmed at the uh, threatening letter from the city attorney uh, to Abigail Sarah, who is the chair of the Police Conduct Oversight Commission and whose work, frankly, is the basis for a lawsuit I'm involved in alleging the unlawful use of coaching to hide police discipline. Um, this may not have directly to do with the charter, but maybe it's a softball question for you. It does seem to me um, that this complete power over the police department here, uh, has, you know, this seems to me a symptom of that, that the, the, this attempt to silence uh, Ms. Sarah with this, I think, specious complaint uh, while ignoring, you know, what the chief is doing. Um, there's a softball question for you, but I just want you to comment on that before you have to sign off. Yeah, well, I really appreciate it. You know, I, I have significant concern. Either the mayor has full authority over the police department, and I, frankly, it doesn't matter if he asked the chief to do it, if he gave a wink and a nod, if he ignored it. Uh, the, the fact is that it happened under the mayor's authority, and um, I think the politicization of our police department in that way is really problematic for the city. Um, and I think Fry holds responsibility for that. You know, I, like so many in the city, think Arredondo, uh, Chief Arredondo is an exceptional public leader. And he is um, uh, a child of Minneapolis, has such a heart for Minneapolis. And I, it's hard to imagine designing a better police chief, so to speak. Um, and so I was really disappointed to see um, the politicization around the police department. And I, I think it's the mayor's job to make sure that doesn't happen. And so, yeah, I think that separation um, with Charter Amendment 2 and having really, frankly, more of a normal legislative policymaking and oversight um, than what we do currently it is one of the reasons I support it. Okay, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay. Appreciate it. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you, Kate. Uh, AJ, let me ask you, since we do still have you with us, um, if, if you get your wish and Charter Amendment 1 passes and Charter 2, Amendment 2 does not pass, what will you do to make the city council feel like they're more of a partner in the setting of public safety policy? And maybe related to that, do you think Mayor Fry has gone too far in terms of asserting his complete authority over the police department? How would you work? How would you work with the council if you get your wish and one passes and two does not? Yeah, I mean, so remember, I'm I'm that unique candidate here that's that's actually in this own third way. I do want to have a new department of public safety. So what I plan on doing is having a citizen assembly. So we can actually do that hard work of looking at what that model looks like uh, and then have an accurate plan for execution and adoption by the end of the administration. So, I mean, that's that would be my that would be my ideal outcome is one passes and no, two doesn't and, and three does. And I become mayor because then I think we do really have that 
that genuine second bite at the apple where I think we could do justice in having a new Department of Public Safety. Um, I, I have to just say something about when, when you guys were talking earlier about you know youth and Black youth in particular and the relationships and dynamics with uh, law enforcement and police. Uh, someone that you know I would say had a, a hard relationship with law enforcement, had a negative uh, appeal, or I would say understanding of them. Uh, and then going into the man that I am now, really saying I want to be mayor and hopefully transform it, but not this way, um, really, really to me comes down to why I'm not supporting number two. I mean, I'm a democratic socialist, so I am to the left of Kate and, and both Jacob. And, and I understand where the, the creation of this amendment is, right? And, and for me, you know, we, we have to be fair to say that there has been a major shift in how we view police in the city of Minneapolis, in the country at large. And I think there's an onus on us, specifically me as a millennial, uh, who really is going to be that meek who inherits the earth, I would say, uh, and, and, and really setting a good example for the next generation of what, what it means to uh, get cultures to change, uh, get systems to change, uh, but also have that root understanding that Policing is something that is honorable, that should have integrity, that we should be championing and really uh, exposing to our kids in, in a positive light. Um, calling them out is appropriate and we need to do that. And that's the hard work of the civil rights movement and, and what we have to continue in the city of Minneapolis. Uh, but for me, you know, I, I just do not agree with the, with the two, you know, false dichotomies and binary, you know, system that we're looking at. It's either MPD and JTL, we can do it right now, or it's, this is the only way with you know a new department of public safety and, and we're just and we're just not having that appropriate conversation i think you know if i'm lucky to win i think we will have that appropriate conversation i think most people aren't really i think um you know understanding how important mediation is <laughs> uh, to really reconcile these racial issues and, and systematic racist uh, i would say um institutions and that's what i'm looking to do really um as, as the next mayor of minneapolis um and you know, I would also say, you know, Kate made the assertion that, you know, Charter One is, is being funded outside. I mean, you know, to me, I don't know why we use, you know, different arguments for different contexts, but I mean, question two has a million dollars worth of funds that has been really spent in the city to really, and in the name of black and brown communities. I mean, uh, I think she's right and very accurate to say that 20,000 signatures have been signed. I would say that it is disingenuous to say a lot of black and BIPOC people led those, you know, those door knocks. I know particularly one person, if you, if you read the Saha Journal, who used to work for Yes for Minneapolis and, and left because, you know, they were being tokenized as a, as a person of indigenous uh, background. Um, and to me, that's my experience with how this, and, and, and I understand it more intimately, I think, because I am of the left. <laughs> so, um, and, and I think, you know, it, it, is, it is problematic. It really, really is problematic. So, you know, I, I, maybe my own personal frustration is not very important at this point, but I have to express it anyway. Uh, you know, I remember when I worked on charter change, a, a different type of proposal. It was a city administrator proposal, hmm. um, which has both pluses and minuses vis-a-vis -a, -vis a mayoral. Uh, proposal. Um, we didn't have the, the divisive politics we had now. It wasn't seen as a time of crisis. Everyone said, well, it'll take a crisis for us to make change. Um, now, but, but the, now I, people are accurately, and I myself have said that charter change should never be about personalities. 
So now it seems to be if you like the city council, you're for the second charter amendment. If you like the mayor, you're for the first charter amendment. We're planning a government system for hopefully the next hundred years. So uh, you, you kind of can't win, at least from my own personal perspective, you can't get people interested in charter change unless there's divisive politics going on. But if you have the divisive politics, you're voting for it for the wrong reason. So um, I don't know what the solution. You know, what I want to do is um, maybe uh, you're not ready for this, Josh or Walt, but um, you guys kind of started us off with the conversation. It sounds like we have a good number of viewers, which is great. I don't know if we have questions from the audience per se, but uh, Josh, I know you far more than me, frankly, um, have been a, you know, have been watching city council meetings. <laughs> um, I confess that I, I'm sure you watch far more than I do. Um, and how do you comment on those who, I, I just, I'm interested in your thoughts and what you've seen and heard, you know, the criticisms of the second charter amendment have largely been that there just hasn't been any planning. There's no plan. Um, what is your take on the position of many of the city council members that they've been told they can't plan? Have you, is that something that you resonates with you? Do you think that's the case? And have you actually seen that when you've been watching some of the, 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 the meetings take place? Yeah, so there was a, a meeting, I believe it was of the Public Health and Safety Committee where a presentation was made by several um, council members um, who are supportive of, of question two, um, and they presented uh, at this point a, a skeleton of what the department structure might look like and talked about this public engagement process um, and uh, the involvement of city staff in developing a draft ordinance. Um, and Susan Trammell, the uh, city's chief ethics officer, stepped in uh, at that point and advised them that that would be um, not permissible because they would be using city resources, um, in her view, to advocate for a ballot question if they were to do that. Um, and she was later quoted in the Star Tribune on that uh, issue as well. Um, so yes, I, I, I witnessed um, uh, a city, uh, one of the city attorneys advised the, the council that they were not permitted to, to develop that plan to share that with the uh, people of the city. Well, has that been shared with anyone in the city? Can we put up a link? Uh, has it been kind of uh, exercised from city documents? Because it, so there, there it's up. Oh yeah, abs absolutely. That that document's still available. Um, I can I can go search in that for in limbs right now. Uh, I just one of the things that we're trying to do, Val and I, in the conversations we've had, is just kind of bust some of these myths that are out there, regardless of what side of the issue we tend to be on and and so just in the interest of fairness having criticized the council myself admittedly for months for not having a plan you know when i then discover they were told they can't have one uh uh but that would be helpful i think for people to to, to see that because uh, greg you asked a good question you know what is the plan um so walt uh as you hear this um uh, in the conversation that's taken place tonight, uh, um, what, if anything, gives you hope that we can make this move to a, a guardian style of policing? And, and let, let, me, let me give you the chance, and you only give you a couple minutes maybe, but you kind of hedged your bet on the charter piece, because I told you not to focus on that. But what is your opinion of those two charter amendments? Uh, you, you, you certainly are free to share that with us. 
By the way, I, I just okay. have to say, I'm going to have to leave, by the thank way. You so thank you so much, Thank you, guys, for the for We really appreciate it. Best of luck on the trail. Thank you. Yes, so thank much. you. Vote me number one. <laughs> I would like to make a description of the present departments, all the departments versus the police department. All the other departments are a weak mayor, strong council, where the council is given executive authority. Now, you cannot make executive decisions by committee. Okay, so that is very defective and it has cost this city enormous amounts, okay? Uh, no institution tries to have multiple chief executives because they war with each other about what should be done. And if you need rapid decisions, you need a chief executive. Okay, so the executive authority of the council violates the principle of separation of powers. The proper, the proper separation of powers is that we have a legislative council and an executive mayor. All right, what about the police department? It, in contrast to the others, is a strong mayor, weak council model, which is totally undemocratic. And it prevents the council from riding herd on the mayor. So what we need is neither a strong mayor weak council, nor a weak, count, uh, weak mayor, strong council. We want an executive mayor, legislative council, like every other level of government. We have found proven that is the way to go. So how do we get to that? Because I think that gives the best prospect for genuine police reform. Well, you should then vote to take the executive power away from the council. And that's, char or that's Charter Amendment 1. It has no downside. It simply takes executive authority from the council and leaves them with legislative authority. But the flaw is it didn't complete the job. It did not restore legislative authority over the police department. And that's what Charter Amendment 2 does, but here's the hooker. You can vote for one, whether you're for one or two. The city would be much better off to have a council without executive authority. But if you believe in amendment two, then you must vote for one. Because if you don't vote for one, then you have simply ex left the, all the other departments with this 14 boss problem, the, the strong council weak mayor, and extended it to the police. Whereas if you vote for both, then amendment one takes executive authority from the council. Amendment two gives legislative authority over the police back to the council. So it has legislative authority over all departments and the mayor has executive authority over all the mountain and we've completed the job. So the hooker is if two passes and one doesn't, We've extended the 14 boss problem to the police. Now, how far are we going to get with, a, with, with police reform when we have a 14 boss problem in the police department? On the other hand, if we could have both amendments, then we have a proper legislative council executive mayor model. We've done the job. And that gives us the best prospect. Now, I, I could go on on what you do with that authority and, and so on.
but that's all in the paper and, and my current remarks are in the paper. So my advice is, is please read the paper and I hope the candidates will read the paper. And if they want to discuss how we get there with me, I would be delighted to talk with you. And Greg, uh, you were at City Hall at a time when, you know, for the most part, if the city council asked the, the, the chief to come and speak, uh, the chief would speak. Uh, you know, I remember there were a few times where the mayor would grumble a little bit about meddling <laughs> from the council, but um, it does seem to me that the city attorney's opinions of late uh, are, uh, that there's been a, a, a new approach to, you know, the, this, and I'm, I'm interested from your perspective, because you were in front of the council a number of times, you know, and, and uh, um, you wrote a good letter to the editor, making exactly Walt's point, you know, the legislative executive. Uh, um, but in your view, how has that changed that, that, uh, that interaction between the council and, and, and the police department since you've but, been. I, I'm a little bit out of it, but it, it just seems to be there's animosity now that didn't used to be there. Example is when I was the fifth precinct commander, reported to the chief and the mayor, but I got calls from the council every day. I got calls at home. You know, called you probably five times a week, right? Yeah. And we, so, well, another story. But, <laughs> but you know, and we, we would do our best to, uh, achieve what the council member and their constituents wanted if it was a proper thing. It wasn't always a proper thing, but whenever it was. And then secondly, you know, when I became the deputy chief of services, I had, I attended the agenda setting every other Friday with the, uh, the council and for the public safety committee. And so if there was a police issue that they, they wanted spoken about, if I was a proper person, I would take care of it. If there was somebody better, I'd line up somebody better to come and answer the council's question. So I didn't think that was very painful. I thought we kept the council very well informed and had a good partnership. So is it just the animosity today? I don't know. Yeah, it, it, from my perspective, uh, there's been, frankly, inconsistency in the city attorney opinions. Uh, Susan Siegel issued a city attorney opinion in 2018 that said that the city council had the exact same legislative authority over the police department as any other department. Uh, but folks that we've talked to say that that opinion was an outlier. And uh, we have a lot of examples now where um, policies are being changed without the council having any input, significant issues, I think in a way that didn't happen when I was there. Um, and, and so I think from, I th think this change in the second charter amendment uh, has maybe been necessitated by that evolution because as a council member, I typically felt like I had a significant say in what was going on with the police department. And I, I and, and of course there's plenty of blame to go around. There's a lot of, uh, of uh, unnecessary vitriol uh, that has made things worse. But, um, uh, well, Val, you, you're our producer, but you always have a lot of wisdom. I don't know if you have any uh, uh, final words or comments. Uh, I think this has been a very, very helpful uh, discussion. Just, I do want everyone to know kind of how this idea started. We, we were going to have this forum 
Uh, it, 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 it was not going to be MTN that was going to be hosting it. It wasn't going to be me that was going to moderate it. Uh, Abigail Serra, who's the chair of the Police Conduct Oversight Commission, uh, had arranged to have, uh, um, I'm not sure Mayor Fry confirmed, but a number of mayoral candidates had confirmed to address the Police Conduct Oversight Commission. Uh, because uh, there was interest in members of that commission as to the views of candidates and how their work on the commission might be impacted by either of these amendments. Um, there was a city attorney opinion directing them that, that they could not do that, um, uh, that it was political activity that the PCOC could not engage in. So. Uh, I want to thank you, Val, and MTN, because we decided this was an important conversation and we needed to have it. And, uh, um, and, and I'm yeah, no, this has been a great conversation, um, every all the way around for everybody. Um, and I, I have my own opinions about why things ended up the way that they did, but I'll keep those to myself. <laughs> I tend to be the one who's always a little more conspiracy minded about the government. So, uh, but no, this has been excellent. And I really think that um, between Josh's research and Walt's paper and the things that we can share out that this has been super informative for the voters. Um, so I, I'm, I'm super happy to have all of you here and thank you for doing this. Well, thank you, Val, for making it possible. And uh, thank you, everyone, for your participation, Josh and Walt and, and Greg, and uh, of course, our two candidates as well. And for all of those who are either watching now or uh, Val may be watching this uh, uh, on YouTube on replay as well. Uh, Absolutely. And, and I think when they're even watching on replay, Josh was kind enough to put several uh, items up in the chat. Uh, so folks can take a look at that. Uh, uh, so there's a lot of things that people can look at to help them finalize their views for uh, the end of the election. So everyone have a great night and thank you so much. Hey, Paul.